The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for... If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Amen. May God's word be a blessing to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do now ask that you would bless us in Christ our Lord, that the Father and the Son would pour out the Holy Spirit among us, that your word would be applied to our hearts and lives. That word which has been inspired, we pray, would also be illumined by the same Spirit, that we might be more like Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue our sometime study in the pastoral epistles, particularly the first epistle, 1 Timothy. And we have seen in previous weeks that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Paul there insists that men in the church must not fight and quarrel and spat with each other or turn to violence, but rather they must pray. And they must pray for people in all sorts of conditions and situations. And the Apostle also addresses the women of the church and reminds them to be clothed modestly in good works and to live in humility, playing the part in the great play of life in the church, the part which Jesus himself took of humility in doing the will of his heavenly Father and submitting to him. Now we turn to chapter 3 and we run into the first formal kind of language here. Formal office language. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, we read, he seeks a noble office. Now, an overseer may sound like strange language to you. Uh, The Bible makes it clear, particularly in the book of Luke as well as in the epistles, that the term overseer, sometimes translated bishop, and the term elder originally called presbyter, from which we get the word Presbyterian, that these two words describe the same man, the same men, the same office. Overseer describes the office in a more functional way according to what the office is to do, to oversee, uh, to care for, to rule over in the church for the blessing and benefit of men. And then also the word elder means Uh, age, older, a status of spiritual maturity, and therefore a particular calling. Uh, One being a functional term, the other being more positional, uh, the two of them together describe the same office. And the purpose of an elder is to provide pastoral care. Now I'm using this in the largest sense, the broadest sense. Pastoral care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls from the pulpit in preaching, from the lectern, in teaching, in the church and in the home, in pastoral counseling, in in helping lead, uh, providing 
uh, vision and uh, activity for the life of the church, as well as private and corporate interaction. In all of those dimensions of church life, elders are to be busy providing pastoral care. But they don't do so for themselves according to their own agenda. An elder is one that Jesus provides pastoral care through for your soul and for mine. Jesus provides pastoral care through the office that he has established in the church. Now, pastoral care is important. It's not incidental. It's essential to the life of a healthy church. Look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Here is language that is particularly unique in the pastoral epistles. Five times, Paul uses the phrase, it is This saying is trustworthy, or this is a trustworthy saying. It's a technical, uh, biblical, and theological term which refers to a pithy, almost almost poetic and rhythmic kind of uh, sentence that is meant to be memorable and so to stick in the minds of God's people and to affect the way they think and the way they live together before the Lord. There are five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. Uh, The first one is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. We've looked at it before together. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then the Apostle Paul gave another faithful saying near the end of the book in chapter 4. And verses 8 to 10, he says these words, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And then in the little book of Titus, we have a a faithful saying which is also given in its third chapter, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works." And then in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 11, we have another, uh, the last of the faithful sayings. It's uh, indented in most of our copies, English translations uh, of the New Testament. And it's laid out in, in the rhythmic, poetic lines. Verse 11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. 
the faithful sayings are a unique and interesting, glittering, jewel kind of portion of New Testament teaching. They are in... uh, I think the best way to, to think of it, they're, they're little catechetical gems. They're, they're like a New Testament form of catechism, a very unique, almost rhythmic and poetic kind of summary presentation of important truths from the Word of God. Here Paul summarizes from the Gospels, from his own epistles, uh, the heart and core of his theology, things that we need to keep in heart and mind as we go about our daily lives that we might live with the mind of Christ and to the glory of God. And the strange thing, perhaps, to our thinking, is why in the world would God put anything in here about church government? Why have a faithful saying on the office of elder? Why do that? I mean, Paul isn't even one who is just an elder in the church. He's an apostle. Well, we might pass over this topic. This particular faithful saying in 1 Timothy 3 may not sound as dramatic or as sweeping or as broadly poetic as the others. It it might not feel as theologically profound as, as the one in the first chapter of this epistle, for example. However, we need to recalibrate our thinking and our feeling. Don't think for a moment that the care of souls is not important. It is important. The Trinity is important. The person of Christ, His work of atonement, the work of the Holy Spirit in calling us to salvation, the announcement of the gospel to all the ends of the earth, uh, Jesus coming again and judging the living and the dead, all of that is important and all of it has faithful sayings. But here, government is given a faithful saying because government is, is not about people who are in charge and tell everybody what to do. It's about the care of souls. It's about being concerned for men and women and boys and girls in the church. They, we all have profound needs. Pastoral care deserves notice. It requires appreciation. It merits value in your mind. It merits memory on your behalf. And so the Holy Spirit inspires another faithful saying that's catchy. And will ring in your ears if anyone aspires to the office of elder or overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, this is a little countercultural for us because we live in a day and an age that loves the functional, adores the informal, and feels a little frightened about formal office of any sort, particularly church office. But we have to remember that the faithful saying is given here in chapter 3 and verse 1. And therefore, because it mentions office of overseer, the Holy Spirit includes the formal in pastoral care and function. You see, just function by itself is good. As we care one for another in body life, we do part of that same. And that is sweet together. And office is also good. It, it may even be a little better because, you know, something that's important to formalize it, to, to establish it, to recognize it, to publicly mark it out, that, that can provide a wider and more helpful kind of usefulness in the life of the church. But to have both together, to have the formal and the informal, 
To have the office and the gifts is what Christ intends. That's better still than what we ourselves can do or come up with. You see, my friends, you need pastoral care. You need a pastor. You need elders who will love and care for your soul. They are Jesus' gift to you and to His church. And you need teaching elders or ministers who will teach the Word of God and, and rule and practically care in the life of the church for you. You need ruling elders, that other kind of elder that will rule or care in the life of the church and also teach. Together they make up the body of elders we call in this congregation the session. Their emphasis may vary. Their degree of gifting in one aspect or another will have a contour to it. And that's fine based upon the gifting of Christ and and the opportunity providentially of time to labor. But the same big task is given to them all to care for the souls of God's people, to care for your soul. And that is why the Apostle Paul says that this pastoral care matter is a noble task. It's a dynamic work. It's not a golden chair that they are to sit in and everyone is to adore them. Absolutely not. It is an active duty requiring listening, prayer, thought, discussion, sometimes debate, and finally, after decision, careful communication with the body of Christ. It's not a matter of sitting, this noble task. It's a matter of standing and working in the lives of others to the glory of God. That means it requires dedication. Dedication, first of all, to Christ Jesus our Lord, and secondly, to truth in love conveyed. But just a commitment to Christ in truth kind of in the abstract, is not all that's required. It's those in action, that is, dedicated, used in dedication to the people of God, to the people for whom Christ came and died, that they might live forever. Let me also concede that it may be a noble task, and and therefore those that, that aspire to this office, and and those that function in it may well be doing good things, but at the end of the day, we know to confess that there is only one who is good, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. No pastor, no elder is perfect this side of heaven. Do you remember the other thing the Apostle Paul said? The less happy verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's not just a statement about the past, It's also a statement about the present. We fall short of God's glory every day. The best of your good works, the most pure of them, are before a holy and all-knowing and all-seeing and infinite God, but filthy rags. Oh, He does give blessing to you through washing those rags in the blood of Christ. And so good is done by His people. But yet, this side of glory, we are still sinners. Perfection in your life and mine will not arrive until the perfect comes. 
our Lord himself in power and glory with his holy angels. Then the dead will be, ri- will be called forth from the graves and they will grave and they will rise. Uh, they will be in newness of life, body and soul. And those that are living, they will be transformed too into the image of Christ our Lord. We will have glorified bodies. We will have souls established in righteousness. We will sing his praise and dwell with him forever. But now, no one is perfect, absolutely. And so Paul is here speaking about these men in broad brush according to a community standard, which is no mean thing. Your elders, therefore, are men of spiritual commitment and maturity, equipped by Christ in His providence to be a help and encouragement to all. The balance of this passage lists off then the list of qualifications for this office. And they break into two broad categories. First of all, there are things that are characteristics of an elder that can be seen, that you can see them with your eyes, you can hear them with your ears, things that are visible about that man in himself. And Jesus is the one who supplies these visible gifts for pastoral care in your life and mine. Verse 2 says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now this is the large umbrella banner under which everything else hangs. It's the all-encompassing topic under which every qualification falls. And it's a comparative kind of measure, not an absolute demand for perfection, in the sense that only God could be so perfect. Rather, it's a general statement, generally true in the general mind of the church. And you have to have a little common sense when applying this. Face it, there are some guys who are the kissing cousins of Laurel and Hardy. Do you know who they are? Or maybe, for those more modern of you, the Three Stooges. If there's a glass in the middle of the table, what's going to happen? You tell me. It's going to break. If there's a pie sitting on the counter, what's going to happen? It's going to end up being thrown. If there's a car and they're either getting in or getting out, what is going to happen next? Well, it's, it's either the wheels are going to fall off or it's going to have a wreck. And it will all be sort of sad and humorous. Resistance to accident is futile. All we can do is shake our heads and say, bless their hearts. They don't mean it to happen. It just does happen, it seems, over and over and over again. Paul here is saying that to serve as an elder, a man must play a part in another show. I have a great uncle, had a great uncle, who was a ruling elder for 75 years. You may think, now how in the world did he do that? Well... He lived in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. He was a young, pious, Lord-loving man when he moved there. And fairly quickly, that little town, that little Presbyterian church, which was in need of elders who cared for the souls of men, uh, they quickly recognized his gifts and called him to the eldership at a young age. And then he lived to be a hundred. We went to his hundredth birthday party and... uh, he knew who we were. He gave a wonderful prayer around the table. It was a, it was a glorious occasion, but there, there was just something a little odd. 
even though he blew the candles out on his cake, we, we left thinking, you know, he really didn't understand why we were there. That hadn't kind of clicked with him. And then two weeks later, his daughter, as only she could do, was hollering in his ear, and even though he was very hard of hearing, he said, a hundred? You mean I'm a hundred? And he died the next day. He gave up the ghost. (laughs) Now, Uncle Reed was the kind of fellow who everybody about town that wasn't a knucklehead would look at him and say, now he's a good fellow. A community standard. Not saying that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in holiness, but just saying he's a good guy. You know, I I think he could be a help in the church. I think Christ is gifted and called called him. Gifted and called him to work and labor uh, in the session. He was above reproach from his peers. And how does man get such a reputation? Well, listen to what Paul has to say. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. In other words, the apostle says next, that man must be mature. He must be a one-woman man, the text literally says. That means he's not a man who has a woman in every port. He's not a man with too many wives, either serially or all at once. The church needs a man with a stable relationship at home. In past places and generations, the church has known quite clearly that Paul is signaling that men who are in polygamous marriage, that they are not allowed to serve as elders. They may not be ordained. And that's been hard for the church to swallow in some places and sometimes. You see, that means that the old saint, Old Testament saints, many of the greatest of them, while they could foreshadow the office of elder, they could not possess it. If we picked up Abraham or David or Solomon and and move them immediately to our own day from the past, then they and their entourage of wives would mean that they were disqualified from having hands laid on them to publicly possess this office. Now, that's a little unfair of a critique, because this whole time travel thing, you see it on Doctor Who, but it's, a, it's not a New Testament or Old Testament phenomenon. Oh, They've been glorified now, and they know better, and they would not repeat the same mistake, and they would be the first to tell you. Marry as early and as often as you need to, but only one at a time, according to the word and grace of God. But gospel light here demands a higher standard. The the concern that is a, a more pointed and felt one in our own day is the gender distinction. The husband of one wife. And there's no example anywhere in the New Testament. And there is plenty of example in the chapter before, theologically, of why the office of elder is limited to male leadership. That's not because men are better. It's because of this matter of role relationship difference and and God calling the men not to fight but to pray and the women uh, to be modest and to embrace the role and the play of life that they've been called to, the part that Jesus took himself as he submitted to his heavenly Father's divine will and purpose was calling for his life. You see, we all have the same Christ, do we not? 
He distributes His gifts to men. And it's not that there are male gifts and female gifts. There are gifts. There are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. The the spiritual fruits are distributed broadly in the life of the church. And every spiritual gift is also distributed broadly across the face of the church for her blessing and benefit. They're not cut out of different bolts of cloth. It's the same bolt of cloth. The difference is the purpose. The difference is the target for which those gifts are intended. The problem with women's ordination is not that it's uh, too much women's lib or or that it's too much uh, feminism or even egalitarianism as some abstract ideal. The problem with women's ordination is that it's theft. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. We are not to steal the gifts that Christ has given to minister to those who face such oppression and pressure and difficulty and carry the world on their backs in our homes and in our communities. Women and children in our culture are in crisis. And Christ giving an abundance of gift to women to minister to them and to care for them is no happenstance. It's His divine perfect will and we must not steal those so that they can be spent upon the pleasure of men as well. They are intended to minister to women and children in the church and so they shall be. An elder is also called to be a serious chap. Not silly. Not unable to engage in worldly matters. He must be sober-minded. The church needs men with their feet on the ground. Now, our problem today, in part, is is that we have learned to hate the roles that Jimmy Stewart played, and we have learned to love the John Stewarts of this world. Irreverent mockery. Tomfoolery. Oh, we love that. But not around a session table, not in a presbytery. Christ demands more Christ-likeness to serve among His people. A man must be disciplined or self-controlled, Paul says, not given to wild fights of fancy. The church needs a steady pair of hands on the wheel. You need to recognize that you live in a culture that copes with the pressures of modernity by embracing at times, and strangely, the wild and undisciplined side. But Jesus says, otherwise, for the life of his church. Elders must be sober-minded and they must care for the people of God. He also goes on to say that they must be respectable and hospitable. We could summarize that by saying they too must be modest. They must not be an embarrassment as a church leader. They must be of open heart and home not spending their time and resources in opulent affection of themselves and their own family in some isolated way. Christ gives good gifts to His church. He doesn't give gifts to cause pain and to result in the cold shoulder. His men should get our nod. His men should open their lives. And we should be the better because they do it. There is, if you will allow me to say, 
no room in the inn for brutish or arrogant behavior. Our culture loves that. We applaud when the boorish and the brutish are barked on stage. God, help us as a culture for such sinfulness. And we should not have it in the church. There's no question. Men also must meet muster. And that's given in the next phrase. Able or apt to teach. An elder has to be apt to teach. And this is the only specifically doctrinal or theological term which is given. Not every elder has the same degree of knowledge and usefulness in this area. But the aptness to teach must be present. And it must have been used in the life of the church. Oh, not everyone... Not everyone knows all things. Not one man does except our Lord Himself. No elder, no pastor, no seminary professor for that matter knows all. Only God knows all things. We know only in part. We know through a glass darkly. But an elder must know the Lord. He must know the Word of the Lord. He must know not just some basic rudiments that he sort of heard vaguely along the way. He must be proficient proficient in handling biblical truth. This is a distinctive mark of one gifted to serve in this way. The same cannot be said as a requirement for the deacons. In the balance of the chapter, there is no such requirement. Neither is it laid down for diaconal helpers, as others in the church also must be. But an elder must be one who has... The two dimensions of calling, teaching the Word of God and ruling or caring or overseeing in its application and aspects. Teaching elders are to teach and rule. Ruling elders are to rule and teach. One would think that teaching elders perhaps spend more time teaching and ruling elders spend more time ruling, but the two together have the abundance of gifts which Christ gives to His church for such pastoral care matters. And morality is important too. There is a last set of phrases which make that clear. Paul in effect says that we are not to smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. One after another he rattles off these outward visible, moral qualities. And here says we are not to be like that at all. So an elder shouldn't be a drunkard. Shouldn't be a bruiser. Shouldn't be a fighter. Shouldn't be a money grubber. It's not that he's perfect in every way. The point is is that Jesus gifts men who are redeemed to help others along the road of Christ-likeness. They should be able to help you in these things. Now those are the visible gifts. And then there's this section at the end, a set of four verses that talk about something else. Yes, something that you can see, but not something that you can see directly in the man. There's sort of an indirect way of getting about something in the man. Jesus supplies not only visible gifts, but he also supplies hidden gifts for pastoral care. You know, what's deep in a man's soul 
is something that you uh, can't put him under a microscope and see. I read online, you know, that, uh, that some breeds of dogs, they need their masters to look long and steady in their eyes. And so I've adopted a little ritual with little dog. I walk over and I look at her and we see who blinks first. But you can't stare in the eyes of someone else and see into their soul and know what they're really like on the inside in their walk with God. You can't see that directly. But here the Apostle Paul under inspiration points to three flanks along which you can see indirectly and get an approximate indirect answer to vital things otherwise unseen. Hidden gifts are first of all seen in the mirror of the family. Verse 4 says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I would argue with the number of words given and the strategic placing of it that this may actually be the most important qualification of all because looking in the mirror, you can see what you could not otherwise see about the man. Have I told you the story? That when I was in seminary, I got in a... uh, I got in a little funny tit for tat with my lower neighbor. We were at a party down in their home, and and uh, someone made some uh, deprecating remark about his receding hairline. And, and back before I had a receding hairline, I thought, ooh, here's a great opening. And I said, Tito, yeah, you're losing a little hair there. And he shot back without hesitation. You're one to talk. And I said, Tito, what are you talking about? And he looked at me and he started laughing. He said, you don't know, do you? I said, what? He said, you don't know. I said, what are you talking about? He said, come with me. And he took me in the bathroom and with a couple of mirrors, you know, did the uh, reflection and a reflection thing. And I screamed. It was the first time I ever saw the ball spot appearing. (laughs) Sometimes the most important things in life can be seen in the mirror rather than directly face to face. The next mirror that we look in is the mirror of providence. Verse 6 says, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Here, Paul is saying that an elder must not be new. These are not to be new gifts. They're to be tried and tested and used with a track record. You don't lay hands on a man just kind of in a hope and a wish and a prayer You do it because Christ has clearly and demonstrably given those gifts. And then the third mirror is one that we find strange and perhaps even objectionable. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Of all of the mirrors to indirectly know something about a man's life, the last a Christian church would come up with, or an apostle not under inspiration, is the idea that to find out whether a man's called of Jesus, you go out and ask the pagans in the surrounding community. But that's exactly what Paul says. You ask outsiders. What's his reputation with those on the outside of the church, not just those on the inside? Sometimes congregations collectively lose their minds. Or all of American evangelicalism can have a, well, shall we say it, 
a daft moment in church history. Let me give you a clear illustration of this. Do you remember Jim and, Tam, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker? Need I say more? The outsiders knew. You know, somebody with an air-conditioned doghouse, something's wrong. And the church, so many Christians, well-meaning, only saw celebrity with stars in their eyes. Oh, one truly called to be an elder must have a good reputation even with outsiders. This office of overseer is not one to puff up men. It is not about them. It is is not a status matter. It's not for a political chess game. It's not to lord it over anyone. Jesus makes it clear through His apostles that those are anathema attitudes towards the office. Rather, the point of the matter is not even the man. The point of the matter is that Jesus loves His church. That Jesus gives gifts to bless the souls of men and women and boys and girls, that He provides just what our souls need. Let us pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would help us, help us by Your grace and by Your gifting and Your strength, minister to us through pastoral care of the broadest kind in the life of this church, and others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.